Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey, everybody. If you haven't heard it already, welcome to CBC. My name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here. And today, for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about why we gather. Um, We're going to talk about the current cultural landscape. And we're going to talk about why this time is worth your time. Because I think it's important. But before we do that... If you're new to CBC, we do something every week before we open the scripture. We, we differentiate between this space, whether you're online or in person, and all the other spaces in our world. Not that there's anything more holy about this hour and 15 minutes, hour and 30, if I'm feeling good, you know? Uh, but we do believe that it's intentional, and we intentionally set it aside to be reminded of the goodness of God. And so we've got to understand that, that the currency of our world so often is criticism and cynicism. And we put those aside, we come into this space, and we want to ask the question, begin with, what is God doing in my spirit this morning? What is God trying to teach me and show me through his words, his scripture, the people around me? So we're just going to take a second, and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I'll give you time to pray if you feel led, and just say a silent prayer that the Holy Spirit might teach you this morning. And then I'll ask you to pray for me. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to join others in celebrating your goodness this morning. We need it. We need to be reminded. So as we open some scripture today, Holy Spirit, teach us, encourage us, and convict us all those good things that push us closer to who we're becoming in Jesus, who we want to be, our better picture or view of the world that God has created. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and and say a, a prayer to yourself that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning. I see, pray for me that God might use the preparation um, just to show people his goodness and to show people the value of believers gathering together, that God might use this sermon to further his kingdom. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews 10 today, but... Before we get there, I want to talk about kind of the cultural landscape of gathering in a church service. I've been on staff here for almost 13 years. I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to show up. Most of you don't, right? Uh, Before that, I went to Bible college, and three times a week we had chapel. And chapel was just a 45-minute sermon and three songs. It was Sunday morning, three times a week. Before that, I grew up and my parents told me that I don't care what you do on Saturday night, Sunday morning, we go to church. I've said it before, I've learned in high school, they very much cared what I did Saturday night, right? I've been at church all of my life. And you know what? That's that's probably most of the people in this room, maybe not, if not, awesome. The question I want to ask this morning is, for the people that have done church and done it for a long time, why do we keep showing up? Church trends, church attendance for the last 20 years has been declining in America. Let's just deal with the facts. 
In about 2014, we saw a rise of the movement called the Duns, not the nuns. The nuns are people that don't have faith. This is for the Duns, those that grew up like me going to church all the time. There was a, a conference called the Futures Conference. It's a church conference, January of 2020, pre-COVID. And a sociologist, Josh Packard, got up there and he said that after sitting through countless sermons and Bible studies, the nuns, the Duns, excuse me, they feel like they've heard it all. One of Packard's interviewees said, I'm tired of being lectured to. I'm just done with some guy telling me what to do. Love my job, you know? He also wouldn't say that the Duns are fatigued by the Sunday routine of plop, pray, and pay, right? Which reminds me, if you want to give to Cross, I'm just joking. <laughs> Crossroads.org. Um, and so it's been a growing trend over the last 20 or so years. And and we've spent some time parsing that out and discussing why culturally we, we, we've lost the, the weight to Sunday morning and we've lost the weight to this space. You know, back in the Middle Ages, baptism was done with infants and that was literally how you were counted as a person. That's how they counted you in the population. You had to go to church. It was the center of society. You had to go to church to literally be a person and be counted. At Bible college, I just failed a class, you know? I wasn't counted as not human. And from there, we've grown as a society, and in all society, we've kind of lost that semblance around church as the glue to hold our societies and our cultures together. That's why there are soccer games on Sunday mornings now, and when I was a kid, there wasn't. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm simply saying that's the state of the world we live in. For a lot of church history, the only place you could hear the scripture was in a gathering on Sunday morning. Because until the printing press in the 15th century, you didn't have one and you probably couldn't read. And so if you wanted to hear about the character of God from the word of God, you had to go somewhere to do it. Now you have it on your phone in all the translations you could ever want. Now, if you want to, you can on your phone or at your house, listen to worship. That's really good. And you can find a better sermon than you're about to get right now in about two seconds. You could. We have more access to technology than ever before. And that's a good thing. It's made the church more accessible. My question is, what's the cost of that to church communities? What's the cost of that to people that say, I can get my Jesus other places. I don't need to go to church anymore or watch online or be a part of something with others. And then the, the pandemic hit, right? I love this phrase, crisis is an accelerator. And that's what the pandemic was. Think about it in the work from home situation. For the last decade or so, companies have played around with working from home. They said, you know, maybe one Friday uh, a week you can work from home or every other Friday you get some flex days to work from home. But crisis is an accelerator. So in one year, we took strides that would have taken 10 years. And now more people than ever aren't going into a physical office. Same thing happened with the church. With the church now, most stats tell us that we're seeing 36% of church attendance return to what it was pre-COVID. So 36% of people that were here in January 2020, uh, 30, oh, sorry, uh, we have 36% of people that came back from what it was before January 2020. Those numbers are real. At CBC, we're a little above that by the grace of God, but it's just this lingering question of why, what happened? Crisis is an accelerator. And let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to get up here this morning and make people feel guilty. I'm not going to throw around shame. My mom was Catholic. I got enough of that growing up, okay? Um, I'm not going to sit here and say you're wrong for it because here's what I found is most reasons why people don't watch online or show up on Sunday, man, they're not bad reasons. They're not doing meth in the parking lot behind us saying, I just don't need God. 
actually asked the staff about two months ago, looking forward to this series. I asked the staff, what are some reasons why people don't show up on Sunday mornings? What obstacles do we have getting in the way of us coming to church or joining online a church on Sunday mornings? And one of their answers was telling, Charlie. If your church is hiring, send me an email at, uh, <laughs> kidding. What, what I took from this was, we got a good staff. They like everybody else. Um, what I took, this, there's some really good answers up there. Muscle memory is a good one. One of my favorite, if you look at the first two, family time and lazy, lazy mornings. When the pandemic hit, it was the first time in the 13 years I've had this job that I get to be home with my family on a Sunday morning. One Sunday, I made donuts for my wife and kid. You know that? I made donuts from scratch and I watched the church service and it wasn't this one. <laughs> it was a church service of a little church crush I have on a church in Portland, right? Because he's really good. And that's a good thing. It was a good day for my family. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and I said, why don't you go to church anymore post COVID? And he doesn't, there's nothing to do with a lack of belief in Jesus as the best way forward. He just says, because life is so hectic, Sunday mornings are the only slow mornings we have. I was like, man, that's good. And that's okay. And so, so this morning, what I want to do is not frame the conversation around why are you a bad person for not going to church this morning? What I want to do is simply say, why do we come in the first place? If all those things are good, what's the bigger value in showing up? Last week, we talked about the best goods. Because I think, I think leading with shame and, and, and leading with some kind of morose reason why you don't come isn't lasting. I think what we need to do is remember why people show up online, in person, in some capacity to a church community together in the first place. And that's exactly what we're getting to in Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, the tension in that book is all about a community of people that started to stop believing in Jesus. In the first century world, you had large Jewish sections of people who started believing in Jesus and then had these really big ties back to Judaism because that's where they came from. That was their family. That was their culture. That was their city. That was their town. And so the book of Hebrews is written so the author could say, hey, hey, Jesus is still worth it. Let me tell you why Jesus is better than Judaism. And in chapter 10, in chapter 10, in verse 19, we're going to begin today, he, he gets into this space and, and he tells them in verse 25, he says, and let us take thought of how to spur one another on, not abandoning our own meetings or not neglecting meeting together as some people do. So why do we need to show up? The Bible says, so let's go home, right? <laughs> no, I, I live with a life mantra of, if you can say it in 10 words instead of two, that's a better way to go. So we're going to keep going for a little while. He says, don't forget meeting together. The, the problem with that verse, sometimes we take it out of context. We just throw that at people and say, so show up on Sundays or watch online. The problem is that verse is found in a section starting in verse 19. And, and in the Greek, it's all one sentence. He's making a case for why the gathering is good. And he starts in verse 19 and he starts to build towards this point. So we're going to spend the next two weeks in these six verses and we're going to talk about why his good is there for the good of those getting together. We're going to talk about what his reasonings were for gathering. And so look at verse 19 with me. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's pause there. 
So if you, if, you, if you follow kind of the Jewish tradition in the Old Testament, what we see in this text is so many phrases that call them to realign themselves from a Jewish perspective to a new one under Jesus. So therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, confidence was not something Jewish people had in spades. They always seemingly lived on edge. Does God like me today or not like me today? Should I have given a bigger dove yesterday than I did yesterday? Confidence was not something that came with the religious system in the first century world if you were Jewish. Confidence is not something that comes with most religious systems in our day to day. We live in this space where have we earned in a favor of God today for tomorrow? And that's the differentiator between Jesus and everything else. It's not by our effort, it's by his that God's love is merited. And so the first thing he says is that we have confidence to enter the sanctuary, the holy place of God in the first century world, in the temple and even the tabernacle. There were different levels of places you could enter based on your intrinsic goodness. If you were a Jew versus a Gentile, a man versus a woman, a slave versus a free person, this text says you can have confidence to go right into the sanctuary. And here's why, by the blood of Jesus. First century world, Jewish world, leading up to this, the reason you had confidence was because of the sacrifice you made. You made a sacrifice depending on your sin. Sometimes it was a dove, sometimes it was bread, sometimes it was a bull. You made sacrifices. And that blood gave you confidence to keep walking towards God. This writer is saying, I know you think it's that, but it's really the blood of Jesus that gives you confidence. And then he goes through and he says that Jesus inaugurated for us through the curtain. And again, that, that symbolism, the holy of holies, the place where the spirit of God dwelt, that in the Old Testament, if you walked in there, you died. If you looked in there, you died. There was a thick veil. So the wind couldn't blow it over because if it did and you looked in there, you no longer lived. This was where the holiest space was in the whole land of Israel. It says that Jesus ripped it down through his sacrifice so that we could have access to God what the writer's doing right here is he's making a case for a new community, a new kind of world, a new identity that they live in. So he's saying, why do we not want to forget gathering together? Because we are a new people. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. <laughs> What the writer of Hebrews does is he's making this big case over this sixth first arc and he's saying this is why we don't want to stop gathering together first and foremost is you need to know who you are because you need to know who God is and what he's done for you. He, he wraps it in this very clear statement of identity. And so one of the things that we do when we come together, one of the most important parts is we remind ourselves of who God is and who we are in light of that. We, we teach good theology and it's really important. That song we sing, I believe in God, our Father, beautiful. I'm leading worship next week, everybody. That, that song we sang is just the Nicene Creed. It's a thing they wrote down in 325 AD and said, this is what we believe about God. A central theology is crucially important because theology is the way in which we think about God. And here's the deal. I don't care if you've been coming to church for six weeks or 60 years. You don't know all of it yet. You don't. And we need others to help. In, in Acts 18, you have a couple of people trying to figure out church. And you have this guy, Apollos, he's a big deal. And he, he gets into the synagogue. It's a gathering of 10 or more people that, that follow Jesus. And so they gather together and he starts teaching. And then you have these two people, it says in Acts 18. 
you have Priscilla and Aquila, and they come alongside him and they say, hey, man, that was, that was powerful and passionate, but, but let me tell you what you missed. And it says, literally, in Acts 18, that they began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. We need each other to remind ourselves what's true about God. And let me tell you something. Right here in our current cultural landscape, I, I cannot emphasize how important this is. Because in the first century world, or really in the world leading up to about 20 years ago, you needed others to help you tether yourself towards what's true, right, and good. And if you got off course, you knew it. Now confirmation of what you believe is a click away. It is. No matter what you believe. There's some crazy out there. And so we fall into this place in this world where literally what happens is, is people find things they want to believe in and, and then they realize people around them disagree with them. So they go online and find people that agree with them. It is a simple click away to find agreement. And let me tell you something. That is not healthy. God designed us to have a central tethering theology to bind us closer to him. And he, he had other people come alongside us to let us know when we got a little crazy. One thing I like to teach back in the day was a little heresy is okay for a little while. I believe that. It means we're exploring our faith. But the little while thing is where we have people alongside of us because it's easy to take one step and then another and then another and not realize how far you've gotten from the camp of what is good or right. The Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. You had a bunch of church leaders that came together. And this is a huge moment in the history of the church because up until then, Christians were persecuted big time. And then in 313, this guy named Constantine conquered the Roman Empire. He saw a flag when he did it with a cross on it. And he said, in this I conquer. And overnight, overnight, Christianity went from the most persecuted to the expectation of the world in terms of religious system. And so in 325, the emperor had all these church leaders get together for the first time and said, let's talk about what we believe together. And they'd been isolated in different parts in different places. And they'd been persecuted and like literally lost loved ones. And one author I follow says that people probably hobbled into this space together with the marks of the persecution on their bodies. And then Santa Claus shows up. True story. Uh, St. Nick is there. And he held something called the Arian heresy, right? Which basically is just gonna, he believed in that moment that Jesus wasn't fully God. And so the story goes, and you can read about it, the story goes that he espoused this and somebody else went up to him and slapped him in the face. <laughs> because we all need to be tethered to a right theology and it matters because the way we think about theology is the way we think about God and the way we think about God, look at verse 19, forms who we are. We come together to be reminded of who we are in God. Verse 22, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in the assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We need each other to be reminded what true north is. And the hard part right now with our world <laughs> is that true north often moves towards my expectations, my wants and desires, because I can find what I want to be true, to be true online. Just a brief tangent, there's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, you've heard of it probably. She talks about the, the purpose of social media. There's a Pew Research poll that came out that said like 55%, this is 2018, 55% of people oftentimes get their news from social media. So I just want to real quick say that social media has an agenda, and that agenda isn't truth. <laughs> that agenda is your, your attention. 
one author of the social media platform, he worked for Google. He said, we're training and conditioning a whole new generation of people that when we are uncomfortable or lonely or uncertain or afraid, we have a digital pacifier for ourselves that is a kind of atrophying of our own ability to deal with that. What he's saying is that if we're challenged in public spaces, we go online to find people that won't challenge us. That's a problem. Why do we need to gather together with people we know and love? Because we'll tell you when you're getting crazy. Especially in a world where you can go somewhere and somebody will tell you that you're not, that you don't even know. You know? We, we need that. <laughs> More than ever, we need that. In an online and isolated world, we need people that we know and love to be like, hey, I'm a little concerned with where you're at right now. That is a good and godly thing. It's the way that God designed it to be. So he says, let us draw near, and then he redefines people with a heart of assurance that brings faith because we've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. He says, this is who God is, and because who God is, this is who we are. We are now clean. To a Hebrew kid in the first century, that's a brand new concept, that you're good enough for God because of Jesus. They lived in a world where you were never good enough quite yet. They lived in a world before Jesus came. They lived in a world of a meritocracy and the Christian truth is that it's not anymore because of Jesus. And so he's saying, why do you not want to forget gathering together? Because right theology reminds us of our rightful place in God's world. It changes how we think about ourselves. It changes who we are. He's creating a new community. Don't forget that. Don't slide back into who you were and where you came from and what you used to believe. We gather together to be reminded who God is and then who we are in light of that. And then he keeps going in verse 23. He says, And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. So he establishes this crucial part that Jesus did. We gather together to remind ourselves of the basics of God, the basics of Jesus, which then build into the basics of who we are. And then he says, and then we hold on to that unwaveringly, that hope, because the person who made the promise is trustworthy. There's a connection there between the trustworthiness of a thing and the hope we have in a thing. And I know that because I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. This is week two of the football season. We have 17 more to go, everybody. Okay? It's Cowboys all the time. I watch a football game with my dad. I'm still hopeful because I'm young every year. They have an interception in the first quarter. And I'm like, guys, this is just a setback. We're going to win. My dad is 70 some odd years old. He sees an interception in the first quarter. And he's like, season's over. Turn it off. We're done. Right? Because <laughs> he has no trust in the Cowboys. Why would he? And he has no hope. There's a correlation between trust and hope. And in a world where not just our identity is being challenged all the time, but trust is degrading, we need to be reminded that God is trustworthy. There's a poll that came out last year. This is going to be a shocker. It says public trust in the government is at historic low in America. <laughs> Soak that in, everybody. It says only 17% of Americans today say they can trust the government. <laughs> of that, to do what is right, just about always is 3%, right? Edelman is one of the largest marketing firms in the world, and, and every year they do a trust poll, and they poll about 35,000 people from 28 countries. And this last year, America is the now home for the least trusting informed public of the 28 countries that they surveyed. South Africa's number two. We have the least trust in our institutions, in our government, but it goes beyond that. We also have the least trust in each other. Pew Research did a poll and it said 75% of people believe trust is failing in institutional, institutional and individual authority. 
64% of people say believe trust is falling interpersonally, faith in their fellow man. So all around us, the governments that are supposed to fight for us and the people that are supposed to fight with us, we are losing trust and there's a correlation between trust and hope. So let's take you to the church world. Why we gather in the first place. And we have a trust issue in the church world. Gallup measured Americans' views of clergy's honesty and ethics 34 times starting in 1977. And this last year, people have... People said that they, they trust clergy pastors, to be honest, only 37% of the time. That's the lowest it's been in the 30-some-odd years they've done that poll. Trust is falling in institutions and individuals, and trust is falling in the church. And we ask, why isn't church attendance on the rise? Because we have no hope in it anymore to bring good, to fight for our good, to show us a good, the goodness of God who's fighting for us. So my point here is this. He says, let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. Do you know how hard it is to keep hope alive when you're out there without a community that reminds you of what to hope in? It's incredibly difficult. We live in a world where trust is degrading. It's incredibly hard to say, now go out into that world all by yourself and keep hope alive. I watched this show called Alone because I want to believe that I can do manly things. And or womanly things. It is a show. <laughs> There's seven emails I'm not going to get. Um, it's a show about they drop these people off alone in the middle of nowhere with 10 items, and you're supposed to live. This last season, they said, if you can make it 100 days, we're going to give you a million dollars. 100 days, 10 people. And what's interesting about that show, so many things, but one is that everybody comes in believing they're going to make it. Everybody comes in saying, I grew up in the backwards of fill in the blank here. 100 days is easy. Why not make it 200 and challenge me? Everybody comes in not questioning if, but knowing that they can make it over time. But as they're completely alone and isolated, as nobody's around them to tell them what's good, as nobody's reminding them of their skill set and abilities and giftings, as nobody's saying on the bad days tomorrow might be better, that wears over time. And about day 40 and 50 and 60, you see all these people that were super confident doubt themselves, even though they have a million reasons to keep going. It's lonely out there if we don't surround people, if we're not surrounded by people who hope in what we have hope for, who help us unwaveringly cling to the hope because God sustains that and is worthy of our trust. I read an illustration this week. I want to read to you guys. I thought it was good, well-written. It says, a member of a church who previously had been attending services regularly, stopped going. After a few weeks, the pastor decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening. The pastor found the man at home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for his pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a big chair near the fireplace, and waited. The pastor made himself comfortable, but said nothing. Clearly, this isn't me. In the grave silence... He contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. After some minutes, the pastor took fire tongs, carefully picked up a brightly burning ember, and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in the chair, still silent. The host watched all of this in quiet fascination as the one lone ember's flame diminished. There was a momentary glow, and then its fire was no more. Soon, it was cold and dead. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. Just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember and placed it back in the middle of the fire. Immediately, 
it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said, thank you so much for your visit and especially for the fiery sermon. I'll be back Sunday. (laughs) It's a beautiful example of we say at CBC, you're not meant to do life alone. And, and, and you can do life in different capacities, but, but the community of God is around us to teach us who we are because we know who God is. But it's also there to make sure that our hope doesn't waver because it will. There will be days when you wake up and you say to yourself, my hope and my belief and my vision of the world is tied around a dude that rose from the dead. Is this okay? And that's when somebody else is going to come alongside you and say, yes, because it's the best thing out there. We need one another to remind us in a world that doesn't trust that God's worth trusting. In a world that finds a hard time hoping that our hope should be unwavering because even though your job and your economy and pastors and people let you down, God will not. It's a tough narrative to buy into all alone. And so he's saying, why do we not want to forsake gathering together? You need to know who you are because you know who God is and you need people around you to tell you that your hope shouldn't go anywhere. And so when we really peel back the layers, why all this matters, I think, why we need to gather with others in person or online, why we need a community of people alongside of us is those two components, identity and authority, identity and trust, identity and hope, who we are and who God is, those two things coming together because right here, right now in our cultural landscape, we have an identity issue. We do. All those good things up top, they're really good. But the problem with those things is all of those things don't just want some of your time, they want your identity. And you know that if you've ever had any kid in select sports ever. They don't just want one game a week, they want all your vacations and all your discretionary income and all of your fill in the blank. The things that we run after want more than just a one-time thing. Oftentimes, they want our identity. And here's the big point. We find our identity where we look for our authority. This idea that we come to of of why we need one another, it reminds us who we are because we understand that when we look at God, it defines us, it gives us organization, and it gives us space in the world that he ordered because everything out there is trying to define you. Everything. And this is a space where we remember what it actually does. Why do we need to gather together? Because we remember that who we are comes from whose we are. In a world that tries to define us time and time and time and time again. And we see it. We see it now, fill in the blank. We see it now with all these different differentiations trying to define you. Whether it be your role in your family. I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a student. Whether it be your sexuality, whether it be your race, whether it be your job. And this isn't just a here and now thing because of the cultural landscape. I grew up in the Christian movement in the 90s, went to a conservative Bible college, and you really were defined as a woman, as single or married. And single was just waiting to get married. We've always used tags to define people, and the purpose of us gathering together is to remember that those things don't define us. Jesus does. The work of Jesus does. And we have to remember, as a church, we gather together because everything else wants to define you. And when we come together, it's our job as a church to say, this is who you are and this is whose you are. It's the most fundamental job of the church. Why did the done stop coming? Because for too long, we probably said, you need to be this kind of person and stopped reminding people of who they already were in Jesus. God made you and God loves you and God's for you and God's gracious. We gather together. Because he says in verses 19 and 20 and 21 and 22 and 23, this is who you are because this is whose you are. 
where you look for authority will, you will find your identity. So it's this beautiful picture in a first century world where they were literally fighting over the identity of who they were becoming. You had family members in the Hebrew, uh, in, 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 the, in the book of Hebrews, you had family members saying, come back to this way of life. It's better. Join us again. Be this kind of person. And the writer's saying, don't. Because if you stop gathering together, you're going to stop remembering who you are in the first place, and then you're going to stop living into who you're becoming through Jesus. It's the job of the church. It's not a new battle. It's one that's always been around. We are defined by the person and work of Jesus in a world in a world that constantly defines us. We need us to remind us who we are and whose we are. It's the job of the church. And, and that's really what Genesis 1 starts doing. God paints this picture of the world. He builds it from scratch. He creates Adam and Eve. And the first thing he does, he gives them definition and purpose. He says, let me tell you who you are. And let me tell you what you're supposed to do. Now go and fill and multiply, subdue, reign and rule and reflect my goodness to the rest of creation. In biblical thought, names matter, especially the names of the people who are known by God, Adam in this example. And the fact that our names are in God's book of life now gives our otherwise fleeting lives reassuring permanence. It reminds us of our place in God's world in a world that fights for your identity. It's a big deal. And so look, why why do we need to gather together? (laughs) Because I need to be reminded who I am in Jesus. And I need to be reminded that God's trustworthy. And I feel like everywhere I go outside of this space wants those same things. And so we need church community to remind us of those. And so, look, application is pretty simple this week. Show up, (laughs) watch online. Fight for space to find your identity in Jesus because if you don't, others will take it over. Fight for space to find your purpose in Jesus because if you don't, others will take it over. That's why he says in Hebrews, don't neglect gathering together. Why one sentence in the Greek? He starts by saying, because this is who you are and because this is who you are. And really when you think about it, hopefully that's what the church is supposed to be and that causes us to live out our mission even better. So we have an example as we close two weeks ago. Our worship team uh, did a gig at Marty B's. They have a worship night every once in a while. And so Andy and Jamie and the gang braved the 100-degree heat. heat. Jamie's out there like 12 months pregnant singing. It was great. And I was there. And and I'm in in this place right now in life where my three-year-old daughter only wants to go out in public in princess dresses. Okay? I grew up with brothers. (laughs) So... Uh, she'll say, hey, mom, can I wear this princess dress? And I'm like, "Uh, in public? People are going to look. And Sarah's like, yes, of course. I'm like, of course you can. You look adorable. So they start playing. And there's this little, there's a stage and like a little clearing in front of the stage. And my daughter in her princess dress starts getting up and dancing. Just dancing. She can't find rhythm with two hands and a flashlight. And she's running around um, dancing and twirling and jumping. And she keeps yelling, Dad, do you see me? Dad, do you see me? Dad, do you see me? And I keep saying, yes, I see you. Great job, you know? You're doing such a good job. You're so beautiful. Way to go. I love it. And then she said, Dad, come and dance with me. (laughs) And I thought, well, we have church people here watching. (laughs) I love that moment because... In a world that tries to define us, in a world that breeds insecurity, in a world that tears down our trust, she looked to me and said, hey, I am who my father says I am. And I'm saying, you're good. So she kept dancing. She kept dancing. 
I get out there and I like pretend to not be interested, like hold her hand and then move back because I'm worried about what everybody else around me is seeing. This 30 some odd year old man dancing with his kid in a princess dress. If we don't know who we are because we know whose we are, we won't live out confidently the ways of Jesus in our world that needs him. And so I think he's saying this first and foremost, and next week we get into more of what it does for us individually, but I think he's saying it because he's knowing that to live out our faith in the world that doesn't share our faith, we need to remember who we are and whose we are, and that gives us confidence. To dance like no one's watching because God sees us, and that's what matters. How good would the church be if we remembered that and lived out confidently the good ways of Jesus in our world? And we don't get that. We're not reminded of that. If we don't stop down, make space, and say, this is valuable to me. We need us. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful for this space. I'm thankful <laughs> that you've given us the grace of gathering together. Not, not all believers, all places have that. So let's just acknowledge the good. Whether we're watching online or later or right here, right now, I'm thankful that we get to stop down and be reminded of our identity and be reminded that our identity is secure because God is trustworthy. May that be what we do every time we gather, every single one in a world that fights for our identity. So give us confidence in who we are because of who you are. Give us confidence in why we come together in the first place. Let us remember why we make time together. Because there's a lot of good things out there, but this, this is fundamental and foundational to who we're becoming. This is what God says fulfills us, gives us joy, may it encourage us as we continue to live out the beautiful ways of Jesus in a world that now more than ever needs to see the goodness of God. We pray these things in his name. Amen.